Welcome to Writer Types, great conversations with today's top crime and mystery writers. My name is Eric Beatner, and I'm here with the Karloff to my Lugosi, S.W. Loudon, and Steve, it's almost Halloween, so this is our scary books episode. Boo! <laughs> you got me. Yeah! <laughs> nailed it. I'm good at that. Halloween's my jam. This time around, we talk with author Paul Tremblay, who explained his reluctance to appear on the show. You don't understand. People outside of here actually think I'm cool. And And author Amy Lukovics asks the question most writers have when they speak to writer types. What the hell are you doing in here? (laughs) Plus some scary book recommendations from the Malmans. But first, Steve, I want to know what horror book you love and would recommend to people. I honestly don't read a lot of horror fiction. Uh, That said, I recently did read a comic horror novel called John Dies at the End by David Wong. Do you know this book? I've heard of it. I've not read it. Yeah, so I think some of our listeners might know David Wong from the Cracked podcast. Uh, The book was actually published as a web serial in the early 2000s, and then it got picked up by a couple of publishers around 2007, 2008. And there was even a film adaptation in 2012. But I mean, all of that is a long way of reiterating the fact that I had no idea this book existed until a couple of years ago. The action revolves around a couple of small town friends who investigate paranormal activity, which sounds like straight horror. But from there, the book gets really weird and and totally veers into absurdity via a psychedelic drug called soy sauce. There's time travel and there are multidimensional demons. Uh, It's a really wild ride. What about you, Eric? What are some of your favorite horror books? Uh, You know, my go-to whenever anybody asks for a horror book is a book called Come Closer by Sarah Gran. And this is, it's, it's a thin book. It's, it seems kind of slight, but it's a possession story. But there's something that was so terrifying about this book because she treats it so matter-of-factly. It's this first-person account of a woman who sort of slowly starts to come to the realization that she is being possessed by a demon. But like, there's nothing that's so like outlandish or fantastical about it. It's very matter-of-fact and just creepy. And I read it uh, on an airplane, actually, and I was actually so glad that I was sort of in a trapped environment surrounded by people that I couldn't get too freaked out. Uh, but it was just such a great spooky horror book that really got like in my bones. So I highly recommend Come Closer by Sarah Gran. That sounds great, Eric. I, maybe we should have Sarah Gran on the show. We totally should. Yeah. How about, uh, how about next episode? You know what? That's a great idea. Well, the, the other book that I was going to mention is that I, I'm actually about to go in for a reread of a book, uh, Joe Lansdale's book, The Night Runners, which was one of his earliest published books in like the early 80s. And this is a full out gonzo horror, kind of the other side of the spectrum from Come Closer. This is uh, full Joe Lansdale, let's say, but it's uh, it's really terrifying. And I was sort of looking at it on my shelf and thinking, I need to give that a reread. And I think Halloween is the time. Maybe you could get a speaker system, put it on your porch, and read it to the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. It actually would, would probably be pretty darn good as an audiobook. <laughs> well, our first guest is Paul Tremblay, and he is the perfect guest for us to cross over into horror 
because that's exactly what he did. After writing two detective novels, he started publishing horror and right out of the gate, none other than Stephen King said that he, and I quote here, scared the living hell out of me. Paul's the author of Head Full of Ghosts, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, and his most recent novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, which is exactly where we caught up with him for our interview. It was spooky, Steve. I was scared. And it took a long time to get there. End of the world is far away. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> you got me again. <laughs> Paul, you've written crime fiction, but you switched over to horror after a head full of ghosts was a hit. Has horror been a lifelong love of yours? Oh, definitely. Um, if anything, I felt like my brief foray into to crime, I felt like an interloper. But uh, <laughs> no, I've always been a, a lifelong horror fan. And uh, it's fine. When I first started writing, everything was short fiction and it was all horror stories. But anyway, yeah, I happened to have a, a random idea for this narcoleptic detective. So I figured I'd, I'd try and write it. So it was kind of bizarre being introduced as Paul Trimbley crime writer. Because I was like, yeah, who's that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, A Head Full of Ghosts features a reality TV show uh, coming to investigate this uh, possible real-life ghost story. And you don't always portray uh, the reality TV world in the most flattering light. Uh, <laughs> have you had any uh, experience in that world that uh, made you turn against it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, no, certainly nothing firsthand. I mean, but just reading about, obviously, I think, some of the horror stories associated with reality TV. I mean, uh, I, I will freely admit I used to be... Uh, a huge Survivor fan. I used to watch it every season, you know, for, geez, really a long time. I did have a, a friend I went to college with who had worked on some, like, uh, home improvement type of reality shows, like HGTV kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, so he was sort of my go-to to ask about, like, the inner workings or what, what things would look like behind the scenes before I wrote the novel. You didn't fall into my trap because I happened to work <laughs> in reality TV in ah, my day job. So I was really? hoping that you okay. were going to say something really insulting and I was going to call you out. But uh, that was well played, sir. Oh, thank oh, good. Phew. <laughs> Your novel, Disappearance at Devil's Rock, has the most classic of thriller plots, The Disappearance of a Child, but it quickly veers into the supernatural. Is adding an element like that a way to break free of the cliches of crime fiction? I don't, I don't know if it was um, as sort of conscious a decision as that. The story really sort of grew, I don't want to say organically, because I spent a long time before I sat down to write the novel, I, I probably spent like two or three months trying to come up with a summary because it did have some mystery thriller elements to it. And I feel like I'm not good enough as a writer to make up like the mystery plot as I go. I kind of <laughs> needed, I needed the scaffolding there. Uh, for me, it's just, it became part of the story. I didn't necessarily think, ah, oh, you know, I'm trying to bury a, a mystery in a horror story. Well, you have a degree in mathematics and you, and you teach math. And we're always curious here on how someone's outside education affects their writing. So does math have any influence over how you plot out a book? Um, that's why I get asked that a lot. And my answer is I'm not sure. But uh, I, I do think maybe more than some other writers, I kind of approach writing almost like in an analytical way. I wish I was one of those writers who could just you know, spill everything out and then revise it a million times later. But I, I just can't work that way. I have to go like 250 to 500 words at a time. And now I'll, I'll edit everything that came before it before I move on. Oh, wow. So maybe that's just being anal. Maybe that's math. <laughs> I'm not sure. 
All right. Well, here's here's a follow up question that you hopefully yeah. haven't been asked. Then, so if if you're teaching writing, I got to assume that students would think that having a professor who's a published author is pretty cool. But do your math students do they even give a crap that you're a published author? <laughs> um, they're starting to a little bit, but it's really not much of a crap to be honest. It's like All a right. bird crap. <laughs> if we're gonna if we're gonna go in size. Yeah, it's kind of weird, you know, because I am still like their math teacher. You know, I've said in my low moments, especially to like a freshman class, you don't understand people outside of here actually think I'm cool and want to know, <laughs> you know, want to hear what I have to say, but they obviously don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Paul, you can just play this episode of the podcast for them and that will be validation enough. <laughs> uh, I'm going to play it every day to start class. Just to remind them. <laughs> well, your latest novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, takes place in a remote cabin in New Hampshire. Uh, a lot of writers like to hole up in a cabin like that <laughs> to finish a book, but it seems impossible that you could do that without scaring yourself to death. Absolutely. It is one of my favorite places in the world. My preferred vacation is to go, and my family and I have done it most summers, we'll rent a cabin. My, my wife's mad at me. She's like, everything we like, you make it scary. We stop it. <laughs> <laughs> So you've ruined family vacations now. I've ruined family vacations. I've ruined having like a daughter. I've ruined. <laughs> well, you've ruined math for me if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, usually most people react to the math part in much more, with much more horror than they do to my writing. So. I, I, I've, I have a feeling that math has already been ruined for you before I got there. <laughs> well, let's get down to brass tacks. Okay, Paul. All so. Right. You got the title for Head Full of Ghosts from a Bad Religion song. I did. And Eric and I will take absolutely any <laughs> opportunity to turn this into a music podcast, especially Sweet. when we get a chance to talk about punk rock. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your musical tastes? Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm a frustrated wannabe musician. I would throw away any and all success I had in writing if I could have been in a, like a, a good, like long-lived punk or metal band as a guitarist. And I tried to get into, I mean, I, when I first started writing, I was also teaching myself how to play guitar, but I quickly found out I was a better writer than musician. But anyway, my, my favorite all-time band is Husker Du slash Bob Mould. I've probably seen Bob like, you know, 30 or 40 times live. Oh, wow. Um, but and one of the favorite things that I get to do with my writing is to stalk my favorite musicians. <laughs> <laughs> but I've successfully made connections with like five or six of my like current favorite bands, so, which has been just a ton of fun. Did you ever see Husker Du live? I missed Husker Du. No, I never saw Husker Du live. I saw Sugar a bunch of times, and I saw, you know, I've seen Bob Solo a bunch. Hands down, the Sugar show that I saw was the loudest and most powerful show I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, yeah, super loud. Uh, I mean, Bob in general, especially back then. I think there was a show that he did after Black Sheets of Rain, and he blew out, like, the left side of the, the speakers. And I thought I, w I went deaf because <laughs> just one side went out. I was like, oh, my God, he actually just blew out my eardrum. But... <laughs> But he, he had just blown out the speakers, so yeah, loud. <laughs> so uh, are you a frustrated guitarist in the sense that like, you, you head off to your office and close the door and, <laughs> and start jamming and, and the wife and kids are like, oh, dad, come on, stop. Or did you, did you just put it down and say, nope, not for me? Do you, you still play? Oh, yeah, no, I still play every once in a while. No, I mean, and the frustrated part was back, in, I guess, in the late 90s when I was trying to write songs and stuff. Oh, no, for me, playing guitar is a lot of fun. Well, I can tell you from experience that one of the ways to keep music fun is to definitely not join a band. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Well, is there a difference between 
a crime writer who sort of sees a con or a theft or a murder around every corner. Like it's, it's hard for us to, to view the world as normal people, <laughs> you know, versus a horror writer who, I mean, are you walking through the world seeing ghosts and demons and monsters everywhere you go? Yeah, I may, maybe yes. I would say yes and no. Uh, I've definitely been like a lifelong card-carrying security cat. Um, <laughs> you know, I, like as a child, like I would send my younger brother upstairs first to make sure he would survive before I could go upstairs. Uh, no, I still get freaked out like if I'm home alone and it's dark and I hear like a noise. I mean, that even though like I'm a card-carrying agnostic atheist by day, it's usually like, you know, at night where they're like, oh, wait a minute. And then I wake up the next day and it's like, ah, oh, there was nothing there. What do you, you know, you're stupid. So, yeah, I mean, that, that imagination, too, I feel like that's sort of like the childhood imagination part of me has never left, which I, I'm glad. Well, the best scary stories are told around <laughs> a campfire. Which of your stories is best suited to a dark night by firelight? Oh, man, I know I have, uh, I have this decision to make. I'm, I'm supposed to be, well, I'm going to Telluride, Colorado in a week. And one of the things they're having me doing is it's a horror movie festival. They're going to have me read something in oh. front of a, at, at a campfire. Oh, wow. So I'm still like, I'm actually sort of like freaking out. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to read yet. I'm trying to decide whether I think the first, you know, parts of the first chapter of the cabin at the end of the world, I think would be a lot of fun to read out in the middle of the woods. I think that's a really sort of scary, intense first chapter. Yeah. Uh, or I have a new story and um, it's called New Fears 2. It's an anthology put out by Titan Books. I may read that story. It's called The Dead Thing. You know, it's a lighthearted romp. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Eric, that was a great interview, but you know, he had me at Husker Du. <laughs> it doesn't take much to, uh, to have you, and Husker Du is one of the easiest ways to get you. You know me so well, buddy. <laughs> well, all three of Paul's horror books come with ringing endorsements from some of today's top horror writers, but we can always use more recommendations, right? And for that, we turn to our resident reviewers, the Malmans. Dan and Kate have some scary books to tell us about, and Kate gets us started with a rather unexpected choice. I'm going to go way back. And the first thriller I ever had read to me was The Monster at the End of This Book, written by Joe, John Stone excuse me, and narrated by the one and only Grover. And it is a thriller because he's trying to prevent you from turning the page because there's a, quote, monster at the end of the book. And he tries to build a wall. He tries to staple the pages together. He tries to tie them together. And he warns you that there's a monster at the end of the book. And there is, in fact, a monster at the end of the book. Don't spoil it, though. I'm not going to. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, Kate, that you bring this up because this was one of my favorite books to read to my kids. And I never thought of it that way, but it is sort of a perfect distilled example of a suspense novel. Right. So that would be an interesting uh, think piece is uh, diving into the literary influences of there's a monster at the end of this book. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have our next uh, tribute anthology. <laughs> <laughs> Grover Noir. I like it. Well, have you uh, have you moved on from reading children's books since then? Or, uh, uh, or are you just going to stick with children's horror? I've got fewer and fewer pictures in the book. Um, so I waited about 40 years before I read my next horror book, but I did pick up um, The Rib From Which I Remake the World by Ed Kurtz. It came out in 2016, and it starts out as a mystery. There's a murder that happens in a hotel where the hotel detective, Jojo Walker, has to figure out who, who committed the murder. 
And as soon as that happens, horror book happens. It just like takes this like absolute 180 turn and it's great. Uh, Kurtz does a really, really good job with pacing and story structure. Um, the first chapter, the main character, Jojo Walker, is trying to find a match for a cigarette. And through that chapter, Kurtz lays out his the main character's background, lays out all of his uh, co-workers so you know who the cast of characters are, and you know everything you need to know, and you're ready to go. So it just really ties together, and it's it's a great read. Um, there are definitely, you know, there are clearly horror aspects to it, but it showed me that not all horror books are going to be blood, guts, and gore, and, you know, evisceration every other page. Nice. Well, in a major plot twist, Dan Malman will not be talking about a comic book this month. What's up, Dan? Dude, I was totally going to talk about a comic book. I knew it. Ah! What the? It's a twist <laughs> on a twist. Yeah, oh, no. no. <laughs> There's going to be some horror now, buddy. <laughs> wow. Threatening. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a monster at the end of this segment, I think. Yeah. You know, so like all the horror that I read, no joke was in comics. So like, you know, Sandman, Hellblazer, Swamp Thing. I never thought of it as horror. I just thought of it as cool stuff. I was never a slasher movie guy. Friday the 13th doesn't do anything for me. But the one book that that did scare me, you know, uh, like that I remember reading it and I was like, God, I had to put it down. Was Stephen King's It. Not a super surprise. I'm like, I think a couple of people have read it too. Um, so Stephen King wrote it in 1986. Everybody knows a little Georgie in his raincoat, the newspaper boat floating down the gutter. It, it's now become, I think, almost American mythology. How do you feel about the people who who consider this book to be clown exploitation? Well, it's funny though that, that you say that. It's not about the clown. It, that's an easy thing for people to grab onto, but it's the coming of age story, really. It's a it's a masterpiece, that's for sure. Well, I, I, I don't want to scare you right now in this uh, segment here, Dan, but I am going to talk comics with you for a second, because if you're going to talk about comics that I do relate to, I was a total horror guy like in high school. I was into the slasher films and the Friday the 13th and Halloween and stuff like that. And my the, the comics that actually did kind of catch my eye were a lot of those horror comics is sort of like EC comics and artists like Bernie Wrightson and, oh yeah, you know, drawings of, of rotted corpses coming out of the graves and stuff like that. That was the stuff that actually caught my eye with comics. You know, the, the EC horror, that whole drama is what kind of almost killed the comic industry way back when, you know, with uh, the, the Senate committee stuff and gave rise to um, the comics code authority. And because saying kids shouldn't be reading this kind of stuff. Well, yeah, it was, Frederick Wortham was that, that crackpot psychiatrist, and he thought that just because there were a number of juvenile delinquents that also read comics, he argued that therefore comics were causing juvenile, juvenile delinquency. And um, everybody believed him. So. Wow. A little history lesson for us there, Steve. A little bit. Uh, all right, guys. Well, you got any, uh, any plans for Halloween? No. No? You just sit, sit at home with Franklin? And <laughs> Honestly, no. Yeah. You, you guys are, you're not into this, the, the horror season uh, at all, are you? We also live in a neighborhood that has very few children. So we've lived here for 10 years. We have never had a trick-or-treater come to our house. So we've just kind of given up on Halloween. What? Would oh, it surprise yeah. you to hear that the other neighbors get lots of trick-or-treaters and it's really not about the neighborhood <laughs> and more about you guys? Yeah, we still buy 10 bags of candy. Yeah. Yeah. That's How's just that working out, Dan? It's, my dentist loves me. 
<laughs> Boom. That's a whole different horror. Exactly. <laughs> Dan's mouth could, could be a 800 page Stephen King book. The monster in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, after hearing that the Malmans still buy Halloween candy, even though they don't get any trick-or-treaters, all I could picture was Kate monitoring Dan's sugar intake by making him trick-or-treat with her for candy. <laughs> I could totally picture Dan outside his front door having to knock, and then Kate gives him like one peanut butter cup at a time. It's every day when he comes home from work, he's all giddy because he gets to trick or treat at his own house. <laughs> Let's get another horror writer in here whose books are frightening, Steve. Writer Amy Lukovics has written about such terrifying things as cannibalism, insane asylums, and creepy old houses with dark secrets. And of course, she's also a mom, an avid gamer, and a roller derby star. She took some time away from scaring people to talk with us and even shared a few recipes. And that part is not probably what people are going to think it is. <laughs> I really hope not, because otherwise we have some seriously disturbed listeners. <laughs> you had to postpone our interview because you were in a roller derby last night. So, uh, first question is, what is your derby name? Uh, my derby name is Creature Feature, and my <laughs> teammates call me Creech out on the track. Nice. And did you win? Yeah, we actually won by like 300 points, which is not usual. Yeah, it was like very surprising. It was like a really good game, though. The other team was giving a lot of hard hits, and they were awesome. Well, Creech, can I call you Creech? Yes. <laughs> Well, Creech, your most recent novel, Nightingale, is set in 1951, and it revolves around a 17-year-old girl who is institutionalized basically for refusing to conform to societal norms. So what, what inspired that story? I was asked a question by a blogger to write a post about how I felt about being a female horror writer. And like my first impression was actually to be like I was like annoyed, kind of. Why should it be different? You know, why can't you just say, how does it feel to be a horror writer? Why does it have to be a female horror writer? And I was trying to explain how I felt to my husband. And as I was explaining it, he was like, you realize you apparently do have a lot of feelings about being a female <laughs> horror writer. And I was like, oh my God, you're right. And it like set me down this train of thought, like all these female authors that I love so much that like didn't get that validation of how influential their work would be when they were alive, specifically Shirley Jackson. It was so annoying to me and unfair that like she could have died without knowing uh, how touching her writing would be. But I started thinking like, what if Sylvia Plath wrote a horror novel? I was thinking about the bell jar and all the lobotomies and shock treatments. It's like pretty horrific on its own. And the idea pretty much came from that. <laughs> Wow. So does setting a, the book 70 years ago, does that sort of add to the horror element, make it a little scarier in your mind? Yeah, I feel like any timed piece is like really atmospheric just on its own. Uh, my first novel was took place in like the mid 1800s. And I feel like just the setting alone contributes so much to the atmosphere of the horror. This For the 50s, it was more like this creepy, super clean cut on the outside, but very messed up on the inside sort of vibe. 
And so how do you think readers today in 2018 still relate to that? Do you think there's a lot of similarities? Yeah, I feel like anyone who feels like they've had control taken from them could relate to that because really that's the bulk of what she's going through is having no control no matter how hard she tries. Uh, her parents make it impossible. Uh, the current society makes it impossible. And so she's kind of faced with, you know, where does she go next from that? Your books are listed as YA, but I mean, this is some truly scary stuff you're writing about. How do you decide what's too intense for young readers? I actually never approached it that way. Like I didn't even realize that I wrote young adult. I started writing seriously when I was 19. And at that point, all of the ideas that like naturally came to me just happened to be YA because the characters were teenagers. But as far as content goes, I've never been told to like pull back on like violence or gore or anything like that. And I'm pretty gory. <laughs> um, I've only been told to like tone down sexual content, which is funny. Like you can write about like a baby being eaten alive by ants. But like if you describe a boner, they're like, you need to slow your roll a little bit, you know? <laughs> My 12-year-old, I was showing her uh, your, your books, and she was uh, deeply intrigued by The Ravenous. I think she wants to really check that out because she was like, wait, like she eats people? Like, oh, yeah, she does. <laughs> <laughs> I spent so much time writing that book, like researching recipes that would go well with human meat. I was like, what should they make? Should they make tacos? Should they just make stew? Like, you know? <laughs> Should they use the crock pot so it's nice and tender? I don't know. That was well, if, you, if you include the recipes at the back of the book, then it's sort of like a YA <laughs> horror cozy. <laughs> yeah, and then, and then I feel like the police would come to my door and be like, what the hell are you doing in here? <laughs> Well, you write a lot about uh, shattered families or families that are in the process of sort of falling apart. Mm -hmm. what, what does your uh, actual family think about this? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> I've never considered that. I know that um, my second book features like a cutter. The main character cuts herself. That really freaked my mom out. And I, I'm, I don't know if she's read any of my books since then. But I mean, she's definitely seen in interviews. I get asked a lot, why do the parents in your books always suck? And I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I honestly just love reading books like that. That's more about dissecting family and friendships, like family relationships and friendships. And I find that interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure how interesting the book about a sound and happy family would be, right? It's just yeah, like, how was school today? Like it was that. great. How was work? It was fantastic. The end. Yeah, I feel like everyone, I'm driven to make all my characters like assholes. Like just naturally, I want them all not to be amazing. Cause yeah, I feel like that's kind of boring. <laughs> especially parents, you know, if they had great parents, the great parent would step in and put a stop to all of it. Like, oh no, you have to eat human meat. Like, let's think of something, you know, a little less messy. No, the mom needs to be out of the picture. Well, you grew up like a lot of kids reading the Goosebumps books. Have oh, you yeah. had the chance to go back and reread them as an adult? <laughs> yeah, I have. I have a little bit. Uh, I recently reread Ghost Beach because uh, I was showing my daughter and I was just like, you have like no pressure or anything, but you need to love these. Like, <laughs> well, and, uh, it's a lot more 
funny than I imagined. Like I remember as a kid, there were like the silly moments, but mostly I was creeped out as a small child by them. And I look back and I'm like, you can totally tell how much he loves comedy. Like he's such a jokester and it comes through in his writing so much. So like, yeah, I guess it surprised me like how much sillier they were than I thought, but oh my God, I read every single one. You uh, wrote a few traditional books before you turned to horror. Do you think that maybe you were just sort of denying the kind of writer you really were at heart? My agent would say yes, because <laughs> in my first book, it was like this coming of age teen drama. And then at the very end of the book, she really randomly finds like this dude's stepmom's body in the oven like bubbling away it's like this bubbling torso and she like recognizes the tattoo on it or whatever and she, when she called me to offer me representation she was like I feel like you really want to write horror and I was like I think you're right what what, what the hell is the deal with you and cooking human flesh I know <laughs> also like my food scenes are always really like lush and descriptive I'm like what is it with me with cannibalism, I have someone like serve with their organs coming out in the second book. Like I always have to include some sort of gross eating, I guess. There's like a vomit pie in the first book. Well, okay, so uh, to leave our listeners with something that they can take away from this, do you have a recipe that you would recommend uh, for human flesh? I personally would go with the crock pot stew or like the green chili shredded meat for tacos maybe. Well, I for one cannot wait for your recipe book, and I can't thank you enough for your time today, Creature. Oh my god, thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. Well, Steve, I know what's going in my crock pot this weekend. And I know where I'm never, ever, ever going to a dinner party. <laughs> At Amy's house? Yes. <laughs> Well, before we go, I want to mention an event that we are hosting next weekend here in LA. And it's part of a larger thing all across the country. Uh, now, as many people know, I've been hosting Noir at the Bar in LA for over seven years now. And you, luckily enough, have been my co-host for about a year now. This weekend, nine different Noir at the Bar chapters are banding together to raise some funds for our friend, Dwayne Swarzynski. Yeah, and that's happening here in LA, in New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, DC, Austin, St. Louis, Asbury Park, and even London are all getting in on it. Now, Dwayne's daughter, Evie, has been bravely battling leukemia for several months now, and there's many of us who've already gone down and donated blood since we're right here in LA, but now the family needs our help in a different way. If you can make it out to any of the events in your area, please do. And to give directly, you can visit the GoFundMe page by searching for hashtag Team Evie. That's T-E-A-M-E-V-I-E. -E. And we'll post links for you on our Twitter feed. You know, one of the things we're going to do that night, Eric, is give away some raffle prizes, including a lot of books. But right now, we're going to give away a book to a Lucky Writer Types listener. Oh, that's right. Last episode, we asked the listeners to weigh in on their favorite book-to-film adaptation so you can win a copy of Hollywood versus the Author, edited by Stephen J. Schwartz and released by Rare Bird Books. And the winner is... Ivana, who tweets as the novelette with her pick, The Silence of the Lambs. 
Oh, it is hard to pick a better adaptation than that. That's a good choice. <laughs> Never do that again. <laughs> Sorry, I was just getting ready for my dinner party at Amy Lukovic's house tonight. <laughs> we have a cannibalism theme to the show. It was quite unintentional. I love it. Well, congratulations. A copy of Hollywood versus the Author will be on its way to you soon, courtesy of our friends at Rare Bird Books. Well, Steve, it's time for you and I to go get our costumes on and go trick-or-treating. But first, what did we learn? Well, Paul Tremblay taught us that freshman math students don't give a crap about your bestseller. And Amy Lukovics taught us that the best way to cook human flesh is slow and low. And on that note, this episode is cooked. <laughs> we'll be back soon with more great writers, including Ian Rankin and Sarah Grand. You can find out info like that by following us on Twitter at WriterTypes. And you can get every episode delivered right to you as soon as it comes out by subscribing. And if you want to give us a treat this Halloween season, please leave a review. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. For more on Steve's books, visit SWLoudon.com. And for more on Eric's books, go to EricBeatner.com. Thank you for listening. Boo. Oh, again, you got me. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking just, you know, some human ribs with barbecue sauce. Just keep it simple. Yeah, I like the skin when it's crispy. <laughs> People Cracklins, I like it. <laughs> People Cracklins is definitely the name of our Husker Du cover band. <laughs>